Now, after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in 2004, there were many who lived there who were torn on what to do, on whether or not they should return and rebuild and live there once again, or whether or not they should just stay where they are. And there were some who felt real strongly about moving back into the city and rebuilding to live there once again. But there were others who were hesitant, thinking, you know, that's just too much effort. Katrina was just too traumatic. What if something like that were to happen again? So people were torn on knowing what to do. Though many who left there had lived in New Orleans for some time, some for their whole lives, and they loved the city. They had grown comfortable living elsewhere and were not sure they wanted to move back after having been gone for a time. A very similar thing is happening in the book of Haggai. Haggai, God's people, have been removed from Jerusalem by the Babylonians and ultimately by God, right, who used the Babylonians to punish his people. And they were in Babylonian captivity for about 70 years. And when the captivity finally came to an end, God's people had a decision to make. They had to decide whether or not they were going to go back into Jerusalem and rebuild that city that lay in ruins, or whether or not they were going to stay put where they were. A lot of them decide to go back, and the ones who did had another big decision to make. They had to decide whether or not they were going to rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem once again. Well, the message in this book we're going to look at today, the message in Haggai is rebuild the temple. That's Haggai's message in a nutshell in this short book. If you have your Bibles, turn there now to the book of Haggai. Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, which can make it difficult to find, but a real helpful way to find it is just turn to the book of Matthew and start flipping backwards, and you'll pass Malachi and Zechariah, and then you'll find Haggai. At this time, when this book was written, the Jews had already fallen to Babylon, and they had been in captivity for 70 years, and then the power shifts from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire, and by God's providence, the Persian king eventually allows the Jews to return to their homeland. So many of them are allowed to return home, and not only does this king allow them to return home, but he also allows for them to rebuild this temple in Jerusalem. And the book of Haggai is written during this time period. And again, the message in Haggai to the Jewish people is rebuild the temple. Now, here's the question we need to ask ourselves today. How does this apply to us today in 2014? I mean, let's be honest. God hasn't called for us as a church to build a physical temple, has he? So how does Haggai's message apply to us today? Well, here it is. Though 
We have not been called by God to build a, a physical structure for him. We have clearly been commissioned in his word to seek, to establish, to build up, and to advance his spiritual kingdom. Bill read this earlier. Listen again to what Jesus says in Matthew six thirty three. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are called by Christ to seek God's kingdom. We're called to seek it. We're called to establish it. We're called to advance it. We're called to build up God's kingdom. And what we're going to learn this morning is that Haggai's message for God's people to rebuild his temple is closely connected to this future call for us to advance God's kingdom in God's world. And so in this book, the book of Haggai, we are going to discover some very practical principles that serve to help us seek, establish, and build and advance God's kingdom. Now, real quick, before we we jump into this book, let me take a minute to explain to you the layout of this book, okay? This will really help you as we move forward this morning. Haggai is made up of four short sermons, four short messages that come over a four-month period. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at each of these four messages, and we are going to draw out four principles from these four messages that can serve to help us today as we seek to advance God's kingdom in his world. Here's the first principle we see from the first message. The first key for seeking and establishing God's kingdom is this. Invest your time, energy, and money in things that matter for eternity. To seek to build, to advance God's kingdom, it is essential that you invest your time, your energy, and your money in the right things, in things that last, in things that matter to God and matter for eternity. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Notice what's going on here. When the Jews returned to Jerusalem from exile, we learn that they immediately began to rebuild the temple. So they started off on the right foot, right? They, they got a good start on rebuilding the temple, but shortly thereafter, word began to travel, we're told, to some of the leaders in the surrounding areas that the Jewish exiles were back and they were in Jerusalem and that they were building this temple and those from the surrounding nations began to take notice and they began to take alarm and they began to put pressure on the Jews to stop building. They were probably fearful of the Jews becoming strong once again. So they pressured them to stop building this temple. And what did the Jews do in response? Do they say, nope, absolutely not. 
God is with us. He's called for us to rebuild. And there's nothing you can do or say to change that. Is that what they said? Did they respond in this way? No, they gave in to the pressure. They stopped building. And look at what they said about it. This is interesting. Look at verse 2. They get real spiritual. They say, the time has not yet come for us to rebuild the house of the Lord. Notice they were using God's sovereignty as an excuse for their own inactivity. Hmm. What they really didn't want was any more attention from the surrounding nations. So they, they stopped in fear of these pressures coming upon them, but they use God's sovereignty as an excuse for their own inactivity. How many of you have ever been guilty of doing this? Be honest. How many of you have ever refused to do something because deep down you were scared or you just didn't want to? But when asked, you said, oh, it's just not God's will that I do that at this time. Yeah, that's what the Israelites were doing here. God had called for them to rebuild his temple, and when pressure came from the surrounding nations, they stopped. They said, it's just not yet time for us. It's not God's will that we do this at this time. And they stopped building, and God finally gets to the point where he says, enough is enough. So we learn here, in these first few verses, God is, is not happy with his people. And not only because they were not rebuilding his temple. Look at verse 4. Haggai says, is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, God's temple lies in ruins? So God comes to his people and he speaks through his prophet Haggai. And he basically says, so though it's not time for you to build a house for me, it is time for you to build a nice house for yourself. He's basically saying, do you think it's right for you to live in luxury for years and years while God's house lies in ruins? Folks, this was a huge issue in Haggai's day. Israel was so focused on so consumed with themselves they had completely neglected the things of God and so God comes and he warns him twice here not once but twice to consider your ways is what he says in the NIV it translates it give careful thought to your ways God is warning his people here through Haggai and he's calling for them to be very very careful to give careful thought to their ways because they were putting themselves before God look at verse 7 of chapter 1 thus says the Lord of hosts consider your ways there it is again go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God says here once again, consider what you're doing. Look at what you're doing. You're putting yourselves before me. He says, I want you to reprioritize your life and get back to work and get busy living for me and rebuilding my temple. Why? For what reason? End of verse 8. For my glory. He says that I may take pleasure in the work of your hands and that I may be glorified in your efforts. We learn a very, very important truth here, folks, right off the bat in Haggai 1. When we give more attention to ourselves than we do to God, that does not bring glory to him. 
I mean, think about it. When the Israelites were giving more attention to themselves and their own houses than they were to God and his temple, how did that make God look to the surrounding nations? Not very important, right? Not too glorious, not very majestic. So what God does here is he redirects his people from themselves back to himself. He basically says, I want you to turn your focus back toward me. I want you to consider how out of whack your priorities have become. And I want you to get back to work and get busy living for me and place your focus on me and get back and busy building my house. Build my temple for my sake, for my glory. So that through your efforts, God says, I may look glorious to the watching world. Notice in verses 9 through 11, God even frustrates their efforts to get them back on track. What a gracious thing for God to do here, by the way. You ever had God frustrate your plans to get you back and focused on him? Praise the Lord when he does that, folks. It's a very gracious thing for him to do. At times, we we need that, don't we? We need him to frustrate our plans so that we get back and focused on him because we get so easily sidetracked from things that matter for eternity, don't we? And we, we so easily drift toward inferior and secondary things. We naturally prioritize those things which are temporal and second rate and secondary. They were doing it in Haggai's day and we're still struggling with that today. Seeking first the kingdom of God means investing time, money, and energy into things that last, into things that count for God, into things that matter for eternity. And there is a very simple way you can measure how you're doing on this. There's a very easy way you can measure if you are seeking first the kingdom of God. Look at your checkbooks, look at your calendars, look and see where your priorities lie and ask yourself this question. How much time and money and energy am I giving to eternal things? How much am I sacrificing to establish and build and advance God's kingdom in his world and compare that to how much time and money and energy you spend building, advancing your own kingdom in your own world. And you'll have your answer. So the first key for seeking, establishing, building, and advancing God's kingdom is to invest your time, energy, and money in things that matter for eternity. Here's the second key. Keep pressing on even when your efforts seem futile. Keep pressing on for God, even when your efforts seem futile. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. God says through Haggai, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes See, after the first message, the people respond favorably, we learn. And they begin to get back to work and and build the temple. But when they're about a month in, they notice things are not looking great. Things were not really 
coming together. And many were probably thinking that they were just wasting their time because there's no way they're going to restore the temple back to the way it used to be. It's going to pale in comparison. And they were thinking, we're just, we're just spinning our wheels here. Ever felt this way in a task? Get motivated to do something and then a few hours in, you haven't made any progress? Or maybe you have made progress, but you're saying it's not going to really look like you want it to. And you think to yourself, if I continue on with this, I'm going to have wasted hours of my time and effort. That's the way they were feeling. That's the way the Jews felt when they were rebuilding this temple in Jerusalem. They were thinking in this way. They were thinking, we've spent all this time, we've spent all this effort working to rebuild God's temple, and we can already tell it's not going to look anything like it used to. It's going to pale in comparison to the old temple. And Haggai even alludes to the fact there are probably some old folks in the crowd who were around before the exile who remember the old temple and what it looked like. They were probably sitting around saying to the builders, ah, that's not going to look like the old temple. The old temple had this. That has that. It's not going to look anything like it. They probably had that going on. Their problem was their glorious past was hindering them from their efforts in in the present. Folks, be honest, this can happen to us as well, right? But Look at what God says in response. Look at Haggai 2, 4 through 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Man, this is a great word right here. Notice God is calling out their leaders and and then he addresses the group as a whole. And here's his message to them. Be strong, be strong, be strong and work for I am with you. That's God's message. He says, I know you're frustrated. I know you have your doubts. I know you think what you're doing seems futile, but be strong and work for I am with you. This is God speaking here, folks, through Haggai. Same God who delivered the Jews from Egyptian bondage and led them into the promised land. The the same God who was with David and Solomon. And he comes here through Haggai and he says, I'm with you. I am in your midst, so fear not. Be strong and get to work. Listen, folks. People may be critical of you and your ministry and the work that you do for the Lord, but if God approves, that's the only approval you need. That's key. That day, the Israelites had some critics probably in their midst saying, you're wasting your time. It's never going to look like Solomon's temple. There were some in the surrounding areas who thought rebuilding the temple was a bad idea. Many of the builders had their doubts, but God says what you're doing is right and good, so be strong, be strong, be strong, and work and fear not, for I am with you and I approve. Notice, God goes on to make them a very, very important promise in verse 9. Look at it. He says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Wow. 
And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God says here, take courage, don't fear, keep working, because the temple you're building right now is going to be greater. It's going to be much more glorious than the previous temple. Now, what on earth is God referring to here? What's he talking about? I mean, history tells us, folks, that the second temple paled in comparison to the first in terms of its physical appearance. In terms of physical appearance, the first temple blew the second temple out of the water. So what is God talking about here when he says the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former? Here's what I think he means. What mattered to God about the temple was not the outward appearance, but what was taking place on the inside. Though God's presence was in the first temple in a very real and spiritual way, his presence in the second temple was going to be even more significant because not only was he going to fill the temple spiritually, but he was also going to enter it physically in the person of Jesus. This would be the temple where Jesus was dedicated as a child. This was the temple where he would teach, the temple that he would cleanse and chase out the money changers. So though it didn't look impressive, physically, it would be much more glorious. But the people in Haggai's day couldn't see this. They had missed this. They had no clue what God was up to, and they struggled to stay motivated. Do you ever feel this way at times? Talked about that, right? Yeah. Maybe you're in ministry here in this church or in the community. Maybe you are, are just ministering to friends and, and, and family members. You're sharing Christ with them. You're, you're praying for them, but you don't feel as if you're getting through and you feel tempted to just throw your hands up. Maybe you're spending a lot of time preparing week in and week out to minister and you question whether or not it's worth your time. Well, let me encourage you this morning. Listen, folks. Kingdom work is always worth your time. It is. It's not saying God may not call you elsewhere to a different ministry. But you need to be involved in kingdom work. You need to be faithful to do the last thing that God called you to do until he calls you elsewhere. When it feels as if what you're doing is not making a difference, Maybe you need to change the way you do certain things, but you need to stay faithful to do what God has called you to do and don't deviate from that. Trust in the fact that if you stand strong, work for him and fear not, he's with you. So even at times when your efforts seem futile, you need to keep pressing on. Here's the third principle we learn from Haggai about seeking and establishing and advancing God's kingdom. We learn that we're to be just as concerned with our hearts as we are with our actions. Be just as concerned with your hearts as you are with your actions. If you desire to seek and to advance God's kingdom, you need to be just as concerned with having the right attitude, having pure motives, having your heart in the right place as you are with having the right actions. We learn that here in this message, this third message that comes two months 
after the second message here in Haggai. So you have the first message, and then a month passed, then the second message, then two months passed, and then you have this third message. And remember, the first message was, you need to get to work building God's house. The second message was, I know you're frustrated, I know you feel as if your efforts seem futile, but keep it up, be strong and work, for I, God, am with you. And now the third message here. At this time, people were getting to work on the on the temple and they were making some progress. They were building God's temple up and, and the, the work was picking up and God was, was blessing their efforts. And after a while, many had begun to develop this mindset that says, as long as we work hard, God is going to give us what we want regardless. If we do this, God is going to do this for us, no matter what. They believed that their actions is what was forcing God's hand to bless them. Many believed they could even live however they wanted to live as long as they were still being obedient to building God's temple. They believed as long as they did that, they would be loved and favored by God. Well, once again, God intervenes and he corrects his false view with the parable. And the parable is found in Haggai chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And I'm not going to read it this morning for the sake of time. You can read it in just a little bit because we're we're having to uh, speed it up a bit to get done. But uh, I'm going to explain it for you, okay? Because it's, it's a bit difficult to understand at first glance what's being said here. But here's the main point of what God is, is saying here. He's saying this. Holiness is not something you become just by doing the right things and being associated with the right people and involving yourselves in the right activities. He's telling them, you can't just go and work on the temple and be holy. It doesn't work that way. God's favor is not something you earn with your efforts. Again, this was their mindset. They thought if we build this temple, we get God's blessing no matter what. If we work on God's holy temple, God has to bless us. God has to favor us. Many probably even thought we can go out throughout the week. We can live however we want to live as long as we keep working on this temple. As long as we do this, we'll remain in God's good graces. God will continue to bless us. God tells them here in Haggai 2, it doesn't work like that. He tells the Israelites in Haggai's day, you can't work here on this temple and then go live however you want to live out in the world and think that will be okay by me. Just because you're displaying outward obedience, you have sin in your life. Notice what he says to them in verse 14. He says that the work they offer with their hands is unclean. It's unclean. Haggai makes it clear here. If you have sin in your life, you can't just expect God to to bless you and expect to be favored by him just by doing something. And, and, And this message is not just seen here, folks. It's seen all throughout the scriptures. And this is a great message for us today, isn't it? Because many of us have this mentality. We do. As long as I'm here in church, Sunday morning, I'll remain in God's good graces, right? Many of us have that mentality. God lets us know very clearly in his word, his primary concern is 
in the condition of our hearts, for the condition of our hearts, not the actions of our hands and feet. Now, when our heart changes, so do our actions, right? But God is concerned with our hearts. Look up on the screen at Psalm 51, 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So don't be deceived into thinking that doing the right stuff and having the right actions is all that's needed to advance God's kingdom. God is is concerned with the condition of our hearts. Therefore, we need to concern ourselves with that, right? We are to be just as concerned with the condition of our hearts as we are the outward acts of our hands and feet. There's a fourth and final principle we learn from the book of Haggai, and it's this. To seek and to advance God's kingdom, we must first, get this, yield to God's king. This principle comes from the fourth message that was delivered by Haggai on the same day as the third. Here we learn that though Haggai began his book on a low note, like many of the minor prophets, he ends with the high with a great word of hope. He ends this book by assuring his people that God will restore his kingdom through their work. Look at the very last verse of this book, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel at this time was the leader in Jerusalem and God says to him, I'm going to make you, Zerubbabel, like a signet ring. At this time, signet ring was used by a king to show his approval of something. It served as the king's stamp of approval. And God is saying here to Zerubbabel, you are my signet ring. You are my guarantee that my people will not be exiled forever. I'm going to establish my kingdom and I'm going to do it through you, Zerubbabel. Now that's a huge statement, isn't it? Here's the issue with that statement. Who is Zerubbabel? Who is this guy named Zerubbabel that we find in Haggai? Here's another issue we have. We know that he was a man who died before this was fulfilled. So how are we to make sense of this promise? Let me ask you. How many of you know the family line of Zerubbabel and who comes through that family line? Take a wild guess as to who. Jesus. The Sunday school answer, right, Ken? Jesus. Right. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew tells us, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Right there in Jesus' family line. So here's what God means when he mentions Zerubbabel here in Haggai and, and says that he is my signet ring. What God is doing here is he is reaffirming what he's been saying all throughout the Old Testament. He's reaffirming what he said to the patriarchs long ago and what he promised to those in David's day. He's showing us here that Zerubbabel is in that messianic line. 
And he's saying, just as I promised to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and later to David, through you, Zerubbabel, I am going to provide a king who is going to usher in my kingdom. And that king is, of course, none other than King Jesus. Right there in Haggai. Get this, too. Just like Zerubbabel was one of the ones responsible for rebuilding the temple, Jesus said he would rebuild God's temple as well, didn't he? Didn't he say that? Remember in John chapter 2, when the religious leaders came and challenged Jesus, they basically called for him to prove himself, prove that he has the authority to say what he says and do what he does. Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you one. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And at this, we're told that the religious leaders were floored. They said, that's crazy. You can't even tear down a temple in three days, much less build it up again. But John tells us in his gospel that Jesus is not talking about a building, folks. He's talking about himself. You see, Jesus is God's temple. Because though he was fully man, he was fully God. He is the God-man. We're told by Paul in Colossians 1, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I read this earlier this week in Revelation 21. I threw it in. When John is giving us a future glimpse of the new Jerusalem, he says in verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He is the temple. Jesus is the temple. In him, all the fullness of God dwells. God the Son came to earth. He came down to us. He took on flesh. He came to tabernacle with his people in the person of Jesus. He is God's temple. And he will be God's temple forever. So with that in mind, we see here that the prophecy made by Jesus in John 2 happens exactly as he says it will happen. They did, in fact, destroy God's temple by crucifying the Lord of glory. We're told that the Lord Jesus on the third day, just as he said, rose again, proving to the world that he's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And we learn only through him, only through Jesus, only by yielding to him and making him our king can we become a part of God's kingdom. That should make sense, right? Shouldn't that make sense to us? If you want to be a part of a kingdom, you have to swear your allegiance and surrender yourself to the king of that kingdom and place yourself under their authority. Same is true in God's kingdom. The way you seek, establish, and build and advance God's kingdom is by first becoming a part of his kingdom. And the way you become a part of his kingdom is you've got to know the king the kingdom so if you're here this morning this sounds good to you you want to get busy live for God you want to be a part of his kingdom let me first ask you this you've got to answer this question first do you know the king of the kingdom do you know the king of all kingdoms do you know king Jesus have you turned from your life of sin Have you given your life up and over to Jesus as your God and King? If you have not, pray you would this morning. Let's pray.